Hello and welcome to Extended Play. My name's Matt Parker. I'm a music journalist based in Manchester in the UK and this is my podcast. Welcome. Okay, so this week's guest is James Milne, aka New Zealand singer-songwriter Lawrence Arabia. Um, before we get onto that though, I want to give you a bit of news. Uh, previous Extended Play guests Vant. They're off on tour at the moment. Matty Vant was interviewed in the third ever EP podcast, so uh, give them your support where possible. They're doing really well. They've got a, they're a headline run out with um, a headline show at the London Scala and so on. They'll also be at Hebden Bridge Trades Club, which, as you know, is a venue close to my heart too, uh, on November the 25th. So go see them if possible. Then also uh, EP7 guests wave pictures have once again got a new album out it's called bamboo diner in the rain and they'll be on tour in the uk in early november so that's just weeks away uh, for those gigs from those bands go support them if possible um, as always if you want to hear any of the previous episodes you'll find them all on extendedplaypodcast.com as well as links to subscribe on itunes and various social networks etc and if you want to get in touch and say hi, you can do so on Matt at extendedplaypodcast.com. Okay. So my guest today is James Milne, best known as Lawrence Arabia, the singer-songwriter from Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, I want to give a shout out to Christchurch because that's where my mum and my stepdad live and it's a city I love. Um, but James has mixed feelings about it, as we discuss in this podcast. Um, he's made some kind of beautiful brilliant super melodic records uh with sort of classic pop lil think sort of beatles brian wilson edge to it uh, particularly on the harmonies um and he's made those records for some superb labels as well including bella union and flying nun which is the sort of new zealand powerhouse indie label for anyone uh, unfamiliar with that record label i first heard james in 2008 and then his 2009 record chant darling has sort of become a favourite of mine. So I'll give you a taste of that record now. Uh, this is the very first song I heard from Lawrence Arabia and it's called Beautiful Young Crew. So that was Beautiful Young Crew. That should give you an idea of James's ballpark sound. His latest record is called Absolute Truth and is out on Flying Nun. So I'll play you a little bit of that now just so you can sort of see where he's up to these days. This is a song called A Lake and it's the lead single from that album. Depicted in a dusty book, the mind was weak, the body willing, that fact was chilling. Okay, that was A Lake, which is the lead single from the album Absolute Truth, out now on Flying Nun Records. I interviewed James at the Eagle Inn in Salford, which kind of fits my idea of an ideal venue in that it's basically an unadulterated British pub with a small atmospheric live room attached. Uh, it's kind of an old terrace house that they've knocked through the two floors to make this sort of chambered area, but they've kind of left like a fireplace mounting to the first floor wall and stuff so you're kind of looking up at this sort of remnants of this old bedroom or whatever it is that was above you uh, it's really characterful it's a really good venue um, and James and band put on an amazing show actually I was really astonished at how full and orchestral they sounded with just a three-piece so uh, if you get the opportunity to go see him live do so he obviously tours New Zealand a lot but he also gets out and about to the US to the UK Europe and so on um, whenever he can so definitely get along to his shows anyway that's enough rambling from me this is ep22 with james milne aka lawrence arabia and it also features one of the more unusual interview locations we've had thus far 
Okay, enjoy. Okay, so I am sat in one of the more unusual choices for an interview venue um, from Extended Plays Histories. We've done tour vans, we've done strange rooms and broom cupboards and, and the like, but today this episode is brought to you from the uh, disabled toilet in outside the back of the Eagle Inn in Salford. Um, and I am joined by James Milne, a.k.a. Lawrence Arabia. Welcome to Extended Play. Thank you. We've got a lovely studio here. <laughs> the acoustics are not as well, bad as I not as reflective as I normally expect from a from a tiled lavatory. But it's coming through okay, actually. It's yeah, just gotcha. we, we got some raised eyebrows when we we picked up some chairs to walk in here and, and set up, um, but we're making it work. And it's quite going to going to really like this place. It is, yeah. I mean, we could do some mood lighting or something, but beyond that, I'm I'm pretty happy here. I could set up shop, and uh, you know, there's room for a kitchen in the corner. Could pull, yeah, pull down bed on the wall. You could rent this out in London. You could stu- studio apartment. <laughs> um, so, uh, I want to tell you a, st- a little story before we launch in. Well, as we launch into this, um. I uh, spent some time in Wellington in 2008 and I was actually I was in New Zealand for two months in total and then I toured around for a month Uh, that was with family and then I spent a month on my own in Wellington just after I finished university and um, during that time I before I went out there I wanted to research some New Zealand music and I came across uh, your stuff so I had some very early versions I guess because it was before Chant Darling, this, of, uh, I think, Beautiful Young Crew and then possibly Apple Pie Bed or IA. I had some early MP3s of those, I think, that I possibly, and sorry, ripped off MySpace at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I had those. I had the MIA album, Carla. I had uh, the Beach Boys All Summer Long and the Nationals Boxer. And that was my soundtrack for a month. Um, and I just walked around Wellington listening to those things on, on repeat, in, in particular your your track, um, Beautiful Young Crew. Um, so that meant a lot to me at the time, um, and that's why I wanted to particularly uh, speak to you today. Um, so that when I got back from that uh, two months abroad, um, I discovered that you'd been based in the UK, and then <laughs> by the time I figured that out, I think you'd moved back to New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, that would have we would have crossed over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, what were you doing around 2008 when I was wandering around Wellington, listening to Beautiful Young Crew? Um, that was quite. Uh, it was sort of quite an exciting year um, for me because we just um, I'd been in England for about a year and a half and. And and I can't quite remember how it transpired, but I, I had a friend who was managing Feist, right. and um, I I went to see Crowded House play at Royal Albert Hall, and I thought I'd love to play here, and so I and then I noticed that Feist was playing at the Royal Albert Hall in May, and I emailed yeah my friend and I said oh you know could we uh, I don't know why I don't actually know how I phrased it but I was like I'd really love to play at the Royal Albert Hall <laughs> and it kind of like oh that's not going to happen and then at some point while I was back in New Zealand I was back in New Zealand to play a, a festival in, called Campolo Hum in, um, in that summer and I randomly got an email saying oh the you know we've had to kick the other support act off the tour would you like to do this tour um, supporting Feist which was right. including the show at the Royal Albert Hall um, and so they had to scramble and like get a band together and um, do this tour, which we were woefully unprepared, underprepared for. But um, <laughs> but it was a you know it was a really exciting time in, in my life and career that year. You know, just yeah. we did that tour and did lots of in- uh, interesting shows and little tours. And it was just you know the uh, at the you know uh, at the beginning of things picking up for me in the UK and it just yeah. having a, a, a bit of a sense of something actually happening with my career so it was um it was a nice time that year definitely what brought you to uh, the UK and it was London and Shoreditch specifically wasn't it you were based for yeah, a while we had um a friend of mine um Liam Finn was living there and 
he, he came back, he'd broken up with his girlfriend and he came back to New Zealand uh, uh, in the winter of 2006 and we just, he was just talking about living in London and sometime during that time I was just like, why don't we just go there? Yeah. And, um, and we did. It was just a little, I, I don't really know why. It wasn't a, it wasn't really a career move or a sense of you know ambition. It was just a sense that it was something to do when you're in your mid twenties, right? So why, why London in particular? Well, because they had a he had a flat there. They were living there, and it was like we could move into this flat. Right. And it was like it was a nice flat in Shoreditch, and and uh, um, that was the kind of catalyst for it. It was just easy at the time, and then yeah. And have you been back to Shoreditch recently? Because it's changed a lot in eight years, hasn't it? Or yeah, six, uh, ten years even. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is almost ten years since I moved there. Um, it has changed a lot, and it, you know, I'd first been there in two thousand and three, and it would it definitely even over those three years it had changed a lot. But yeah, it's it's very it's different now. Hmm. But yeah, I still I still kind of visualise it as it was in Nathan Barley. So I, I yeah. yeah um, <laughs> Yeah, but it is a little, well, you know, it was already debased and commercialised then anyway. But. Yeah, now it's kind of um, cleaned up and commercialised, I find. It's like, it's very it's very tidy. Shortage. Yeah, it's a very tidy and corporate. It definitely yeah. lost the, the little bit of the thing it had. Um, and have, am I right in thinking you've been living in New York uh, I, for some time? I was at the, when, when the Sparrow came out um, right. in 2012, we lived there for about five months. Um, just just to be somewhere a little closer to wherever the touring might have happened, um, and during that time, oh, my my girlfriend was pregnant, um, and then we came back to New Zealand at, at the beginning of two thousand and thirteen, or um, to to have the the baby, um, and we've been there since. Um, right, okay. So I was going to ask you about you know you seem to have lived. Uh, in quite a variety of places. What's the drive for that sort of nomadic existence? Uh, I mean, well, you spend a little bit of time in New Zealand. It's, it, I mean, I'm not sure if as an outsider in New Zealand you get quite the same sense of isolation, but when you're there, uh, the world seems insurmountably far away. Um, mm. And so if you have any ambition or desire to, you know, experience the world, and I think once I had my appetite whetted, for a, I always wanted to travel, um, whether it be th- for, for career reasons or just because it was interesting. Right. Um, but once, yeah, it's just difficult to be down there if you've got that sense because it's just, it's just so, so far away. Um, so I, I was just naturally drawn to, you know, to going and living in places where where I could be closer to the world because you just you feel you almost not part of the world at, at times right uh, down there uh, um i have some well fair familiarity with new zealand my mum lives in just outside christchurch um she emigrated with my stepdad who was a kiwi right. um from christchurch and uh it's funny it feels like uh, particularly recently after post brexit someone did a survey and it was uh or or what was it? There was the inquiries to uh, for New Zealand citizenship or emigrating visas shot up from the UK, right? And um, it seems like a sort of large chunk of the UK wants to move to New Zealand, either because they think the UK is full of racists or because they think the UK is full of foreigners. Right? Yeah, yeah. One of the two. Yeah, uh, it could be either or both. Uh, yeah. Whenever there's some kind of, um, you know, terrible conservative political movement, there's always a whole. There'll always be articles in the paper in New Zealand about how, you know, with the Trump thing, you know, if Trump becomes president, I'm moving to New Zealand. Yeah. It's always a thing. It's like a, almost a meme, you know, this uh, I'm going to move to New Zealand thing. Yeah. It's not, it's not that great there. That's what I was going <laughs> to say, because, I mean, I, I, I love New Zealand. I do like it a lot. And, you know, family out there, strong connections to it. Uh, lots of my sort of step siblings, you know, uh, half Kiwi. Um, I was going to ask about the downsides, but I guess that sort of edge of the world feeling is one of them. Yeah, I, I think it's just you know it's it's any it's it's edge of the world uh, feeling is definitely a, a, a downside. It's also an upside in a lot of ways. But mm. I think just you know uh, any parochialism, like any sm- mm. small place, um, it's frustrating. And if you've got um, you know a, a a bigger view of the world then it's quite frustrating seeing your country and, and, and being very parochial and mm. 
just just a bit small minded and you know you want I expect better of my nation sometimes but <laughs> yeah but it's just you know you love it and you want it to be better I think that's probably the main reason why it's a little frustrating yeah yeah I think New Zealand's very very progressive on a lot of things and so therefore is like this I think this like liberal uh, ideal for a lot of people who aren't living in New Zealand and and then in in other ways you know I've been in New Zealand and witnessed quite overt racism and stuff like that as well so yeah I, I think it can be a very um, racist place at times um, and you know it's got a you know it projects this so-called green image but it's it's not not particularly great on that <laughs> front in a lot of ways and it, it looks beautiful but there's a lot of environmental issues and yeah mm. it's, it's, it's definitely flawed it's difficult it could just do must try harder yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's the yeah. thing. I think it's it's probably flawed, but in comparison to the ingrained flaws that have developed in UK, for example, yeah. or America. I mean, that's the great thing about it. It's a shining example. The new <laughs> the new worldness of it, it means that those mm. flaws aren't intractable, and you know, if there's you know issues that you know that they can actually be improved in New Zealand, mm. and it's you know Britain from living here, you know, it's got a very immobile bureaucracy and, and, and nothing can be changed and everything, nothing can be done. Yeah. You know, there's always a hierarchy that stops anything from being fixed. It's impossible to get hold of anyone yeah. on the phone. Like that kind of stuff. I hated that stuff. So, and I really appreciate that about New Zealand. You can actually talk to someone and they'll be like, oh, I'll fix that for you. And that, yeah. that, you know, that's, that's a quite a wonderful thing about it. So not to dwell on New Zealand, because I'm aware of, uh, reducing a personality to a nationality and that happens I always hear it on podcasts and with interviews with people from New Zealand in particular for some reason I think everyone just wants to go oh yeah it's beautiful that's New Zealand <laughs> yeah but um, I did want to ask about uh, the music side of things because I'm a big fan of uh, many of the flying nun sort of classic bands um, and I'm always sort of looking for tips to uh, expand on that so you know I already sort of have some knowledge of the clean and the chills and that sort of Dunedin sound. Um, and I just wondered, uh, could you give us some sort of picks, you know, things that maybe past those two bands or, or those, those few bands that we should think about looking into, you know, so classic or contemporary? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a... Well, if you're coming from that kind of flying nun thing, um, there's a band called Salad Boys who are from Christchurch, right? And they are definitely treading a similar path to to to, to some of those acts, but they're just a really powerful jangly guitar rock band, um, right? Uh, and I, I really love them. Whenever I see them live, I'm just it's just really fantastic. It's just it's somehow you know, it's like the sort of South Island country music almost, but it's so intense and psychedelic in a way, right. even though it's just really sweet and jangly. But, awesome. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, there's a guy called Kane Strang from, from Dunedin. Who, how, how do you spell that? <laughs> um, K-A-N-E-S-T-R-A-N-G. Right. right, okay. Yeah, like strange, but with the, without the E. Right. Um um, I've been I've been asked this. I already mentioned these people today, but and Alda, oh, no. <laughs> Aldous Harding is a, um, a folk singer from Littleton. Who's right. Like her pre her album was kind of uh, almost uh, sort of almost Eng like sort of sixties English folk sounding. Right. Like, um, but her new stuff is really like. Well, uh, there's this one song that is just so called. I think it's called "I'm So Sorry," but it's really um, strange. Um, and I'm sort of. She's been recording a record with John Parrish, right? Um, I think in Bristol or wherever wherever John Parrish lives. But he, she's really um, interesting. There's a lot. I mean, there's um, we're touring with Nadia Reed, who's another folk singer, and who else have been touring with? Oh, there's, I mean, there's lots of uh, the Phoenix Foundation who have been around here a lot. And yeah. Um, there's a guy called SJD who we were touring with recently who's made a lot of records, really beautifully crafted records. Um, I could probably go on <laughs> for a long time. But I mean, I yeah, there's, a band called, oh, there's a band called Orchestra of Spheres who uh, I think they were released on, released on records on Fire Records over here and they're uh, um, yeah. really fabulously strange um, kind of Afro-kraut strange... But, but with a real kind of colloquial um, 
uh, New Zealandness about them as well, but they're yeah, strange kind of nice. jerky afro kraut or something <laughs> yeah. i like that combination that yeah. sounds cool um uh, oh there's loads of jumping off points there then yeah so there are and it's, just, it's just i mean i guess the thing is I, and i i'm a terrible person to ask really because i hardly ever go out and i'm, 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 I'm <laughs> you know I, I it's been a long time since i've been to things that have actually exposed me to a lot of music but there's you know there's a it's a really interesting scene there yeah um so uh, you grew up in christchurch that's right. Yeah. So what was what was your childhood like? What would you describe uh, childhood and your childhood as? Um, my family life was quite. I, I was only, I'm an only child, and, and I mean Christchurch is quite um, a monocultural place, um, as you you probably experienced. But it's like um, you know certainly the part of Christchurch I came from on the, on the west side. A lot of it's you know fairly. The boring middle class uh, um, white uh, mm. area. Um, it's you know it touts itself as the most English city in, in New Zealand or outside England. Yeah, um, and I went to these um, posh Anglican schools, which which were set up to um, you know mimic uh, you know uh, English pr- um, public schools, you know preparatory right. schools and posh. Um, you know, it was, all, it was all set up by the Anglicans, so it's it's quite an odd little facsimile of of yeah. little Britain um, in a way. Um, well, that that was my experience. But also, I grew up in a you know quite an ordinary middle class family, so it's it's kind of a, a a strange blend really. Where I was, you know, we they would they, I was the only child, so they wanted me to have a good education, and so they sent me to the best school in town, which is also the you know posh school where all the um, people who own sheep stations go. Right. Um, yeah, so it was quite a quite a kind of um, you know it wouldn't it doesn't it's not a lot of uh, crazy stories uh, growing up in Christchurch for me. It was a pretty you know happy, gentle time. Um, so it was only it was just it was only when I became aware of the outside world and 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 realised that uh, there was a lot more to the world than Christchurch, and I be- started to become frustrated. Mm. buy it and you know there's a lot of aggression and it's a really a big rugby town and you know the, yeah. um, so I just started to really want to leave um, when I was you know I was sick of people yelling abuse at me on the streets for being pale and skinny you know and so what sort of age did you become aware of that sensation um, I suppose in my in my, in my teens and I, I was you know, I I always looked to Britain because I was really into Britpop. That was like my the music that I was escaping to when I was 15, 16 mm. years old in the mid 90s. Um, and so, yeah, I started. You know, that that was definitely like my sense of teenage escapism was through 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 um you know Blur and Oasis and Pulp and Supergrass. Um, yeah, and then so and I was starting to express myself in fashion that way. And <laughs> um, please give us some examples of. Well, you know, I was, I was like, I'd like, you know, look in the in the um, mail order at the back of Q magazine and buy um, band T-shirts. And yeah, I was trying to get you know Adidas Adidas sneakers, and um, <laughs> it's all rather. <laughs> sort of embarrassing to think about really <laughs> like it just takes me back to a place that's rather horrific to consider but um, yeah but yeah that was you know i i lived through the pages of q magazine and uh, yeah. and select magazine the enemy so i mean was that unusual for a kid in in christchurch in in the or in that school uh, I suppose so. I mean, it wasn't wasn't probably the most. I mean, it was wasn't unusual to be into music, but we used to have sort of these tribal rivalries between the people who are into grunge music and the people yeah. that are into Britpop, basically. Um, and was was your school a happy school? I mean, you mentioned the rugby kids. There was that an issue at school? Was that more just out and about in Christchurch? Uh, oh, I I was definitely um, a little bit of an outsider. But I just, you know, the, I just did my best to fit in, and it was only when I, you know, would visit friends in Auckland I realised you didn't have to try and fit in. It was, yeah. it was actually, a, it was actually sort of a, a big enough tribe of people who weren't trying to fit in. They're actually quite happy just living um, weird bohemian life lifestyles, and it was like, yeah. oh, that's that's quite nice. 
there's a reason people lock onto these things as a teen, isn't it? And it's also, I think, it remains a driving force as well, I think, into later life. You know, you're constantly, you kind of search for that scene, search for that home, don't you, I think? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's quite, um, it's just, it's quite a magical moment that, that really resonates for a long time, I think, that when you seeking that place, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Was, was there, I mean, you, you speak about it as a moment there. Inevitably, it's probably going to be more of a series of events, but is there a, a sort of a, uh, a particular time or a particular uh, memory you have of sort of discovering that? Um, well, I can remember certain things about moving to or visiting Auckland and, and, and realising that that was the place I wanted to live. Mm. Um, I can't really remember specific moments in Christchurch. It seems to be a kind of blurry um, selection of minor traumas, but um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, just 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 that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's really hard to describe without going into a long thing, but um, yeah, it's just that, you know, realizing that people were happy and being themselves was quite an unusual and exhilarating yeah. epiphany. So did you feel like... Um a pretender at school. Yeah, I just didn't do anything. I mean, that was how I dealt with it. I was, I didn't really express myself as an outsider. I just hid. Mm. Um, yeah, and I kind of was still hiding for a few years after I left school. And it was just, I slowly started to gain confidence I, I had no idea that I wanted to be a musician I had no idea that I had the capability of becoming a performer or because mm. I was you know terrified of that kind of thing so you know it was only a few years later that I slowly got the courage to get up and, and perform at a, a you know open mic thing or something and, and realise that I could sing or perform because I was just terrified of it before that because of the ridicule that could subject me to at my yeah. all boys school were your parents uh, sort of supportive of, of uh, were, uh, you know, I don't want to um, cast any aspersions, but uh, like, were they, you know, did they send you there to be the uh, the rugby playing, well-educated lad, or did they send you there simply for the education? Were they Just, supportive of your creative tendencies? Basically? Yeah, no, they were, they were supportive of my, my creative tendencies. Maybe they were worried or about... Um, my career prospects mm. um, and I uh, but no they were I don't think they were too they weren't definitely didn't want me to be a rugby playing lad um, it's hard to say but no I do, I do you know I do think they were on the whole pretty pretty supportive of me doing whatever I wanted to some degree it wasn't like a you know you know following the family business or something right. you know, it was yeah they just wanted a good education yeah and uh, when so you mentioned about getting up on stage and so on. When did uh, you first start to sort of play? When, what, how did that sort of happen for you? Um, well, it kind of happened through, through being in the like. I first started performing in a way in in the choir in the chapel choir. Right. Um, but then later on, um, I had a band. You know, a school band or a, a band that we there were rock bands at school there was a competition called the Smoke Free Rock Quest and that <laughs> was a good name that was the it's like the national high school band competition right um, so I got a band together and we entered that competition and, and didn't do very well but um, that was when that was when it started and, and um, yeah we, we, we were not we're not we were not good <laughs> um, so yeah, what, what I'm always interested in what first compels you to even try at that stage because i think actually even from a school talent show is a massive leap as particularly as a teenager it seems just like and it can seem like a real gulf you know to cross between playing a bit of guitar in your room and actually getting on stage yeah i think it was i mean i think it was um some sense of compulsion it was almost a compulsion i mean i i think i was aware of I started trying to write songs and I was like oh I can this is quite easy like mm. I'm quite I can do this and so it was probably a you know it's probably a, a real pent up sense of not having expressed myself because I've been trying not to do anything at school so <laughs> I, I can't quite rationalise it but it was um, it was it was 
I, I had to do something and I, I just discovered that I could just kind of write melodies at, at will and I was like wow this is amazing I remember like being in my bedroom like oh, I could just do that and then I tried another thing I was like oh that worked as well and that's an original thing <laughs> and it was just yeah like it was kind of a magical uh, moment of just like wow I'm really good at this um, so I think I was probably a little bit excited about having yeah. this talent yeah yeah Honestly, a cool thing to discover, I think. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was. I was just remembering that specific moment in my bedroom. <laughs> um, you, you've described your uh, initial music, musical loves as... Um, I was reading an interview in, I think it was uh, Salient magazine, which is the, the, a student paper, I think, in New Zealand that you did, um, uh, as outsider or mentally damaged artists, for want <laughs> of a better description. People like Daniel Johnson or... Uh, Sid Barrett um, I was going to say you know what was it about those artists that you connected with but I guess you know there's that word outsider again uh, coming into that description Yeah, was it that did you see fellow outsiders there is that no I, I don't know I remember I remember that interview I'm not sure um, it's true I think I was just trying to find a different identity because I was you know, I was brought up with fairly um, kind of mainstream, mundane tastes in a way. And it was, the main influence on my music was always the Beatles. And so I think I was just trying to find a way into something more uh, unusual, you know, mm. just a different um, angle. At, at this, probably, you know, a different angle at the same thing, essentially. I mean, both those artists are coming at this, you know, similar you know Daniel Johnson is just like completely obsessed with the Beatles and uh, yeah. uh, I, I and it was just I was just curious about another another way into it and I was just draw, I was just drawn by the idea of freaks but it was, you know f- you know freak and I put it freaks in inverted commas but mm. just just different uh, people yeah just unusual people yeah unusual people who had some strange view of the world I was just um I think I was just a fan of it, but and, and I, you know, I sort of dabbled in in, in my own brand of weirdness. But I, I'm a pretty conventional person in a lot of ways, and I think it would be, you know, it was sort of role playing anything that I did that was like like that. But you know, you got to dabble. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, so um, we've we've covered a bit of your uh, international adventures and, and your songwriting beginnings. Um, I found another quote from another interview um, saying when I was writing The Sparrow I was 29 and I was questioning what I'd done with my 20s uh, what are you doing with Absolute Truth what's what's the theme on, on the, the recent album um, it seems to be um, kind of acceptance I think um, I was definitely you know uh, sort of fighting against the end of my 20s a little bit at the time when I wrote The Sparrow and it was mm. um, you get a lot of questions about the direction of your life at that point um, but since then I you know, had a daughter and all, all of those questions have been answered to some degree and so so um, <laughs> sorry I just got distracted by that bell um, <laughs> sorry um, uh yeah, it's it's like it's kind of a kind of a, a it's a different view of the of my twenties. Like it's still quite nostalgic in a way, but it's um maybe it's a little bit I, in the way in a way my, the nostalgia I used to have was quite warm nostalgia, but in, in the, mm. some of the nostalgia on here is a little bit more critical. Right. Um, you know, I'm still discovering what it's about a lot, but it was yeah yeah. So do you? I guess you kind of have to brew on your records then a bit once they're they're done before you really realise where things have come from. Yeah, you kind of um, you know you kind of pass them through the through the course of doing a lot of interviews. Actually, like I mean, you mm. don't really you don't analyse them. Or I don't. Or I think some artists do. You know, um, but I, I don't analyse the content of my words very much. I just like to write a little story. Um, it has to make some sense uh, yeah. as a story, but 
but beyond that, is, I'm not looking at it as a on a conceptual level. It's just you know, if it, if it stands alone, it's got some nice phrases and a good little story, then it, <laughs> then it's a good song for me. But yeah. you know, later on, I'd like I'd notice that all of the songs have a certain theme or something. But it would take you know having 15 interviews to do that. You know? <laughs> the psychological analysis you're forced into. Yeah, you know, it's quite moment. handy. Um, I wanted to ask about um, uh, arrangement. Um, because I, one of the things I really love about your music is, is your arrangements, and I think it's a really sort of under-regarded side of uh, of music making. Um, so, just uh, how much thought goes into that side of it? Once you've created the melodies, how much thought do you put into the sort of the arrangement side? Quite a quite a bit. I mean, it's not necessarily um, an effort that I make afterwards, but it's almost a Arrangements are something that almost come fully formed when I compose a song. Mm. It's not not always the case, but um, I do find that other I start generating other melodies instantly, like the the bass line and, and counter melodies or harmonies. They all come in quite quick succession, or even at the same time. So, um, to me, it's hard for me to separate out arrangement with. Um, with the uh, actual composition mm. um, and uh, you know often I'll, I'll I'll start with an arrangement or I'll start with a um, little melody which is clearly not actually the vocal melody but it's a, a, a melody that a piano will play or yeah. a, um, you know I can't think of specific examples of this but you know that's how I envisage the uh, the, the, the process of songwriting and, and demoing it's like it's it's a whole it's all one Colle- tangle. Yeah, it's so. a whole collection. Yeah, tangle of of, of different um, elements that that combine. And on the, on the lyrical side as well, I wanted to um, again. I what my favourite lyric of yours is is uh, uh, the kind of main conceit, I guess, of beautiful young crew, which is we love each other but we hate each other. We're afraid of each other because we want to screw each other. <laughs> um, and that's stuck with me ever since <laughs> I first heard that song I think it kind of was a, a neat summation particularly of um, teenage and 20s years perhaps you know I think when um, in, in those years uh, what's, what's your favourite lyric uh, that you've written what's the one that you, you, you're most pleased with at the moment I mean as a um, I'm quite I mean quite uh, uh, I, the song "The Listening Times" off the Sparrow is a, is a whole lyric that I'm quite um, happy with. Mm-hmm. Like, just as a as a picture, and um, I don't know. Yeah, there's just there's something uh, um, difficult to <laughs> difficult to define about what makes a good lyric for me. But I mean, I also actually a lyric that I really I'm still really proud of is talk about good times off, off my first record and it's it's just a you know I like a lyric to contain uh, jokes right um, but it has to have a kind of sadness they have to be sad jokes and I think <laughs> that um, talk about good times is just one big sad joke and it's um, I'm really proud of it <laughs> so you're seeking uh, tragic comedy in, yeah in, yeah in I, I, I I love that um yeah, where that sort of irony sits—it's—it's uh, it's a really enjoyable space. Um, but there's lots of you know, there's lots of little couplets and stuff that I'm really happy with on the new record, and I'm I'm pretty happy with the lyrics of that of the new record on a whole. Like Brain Gym has got some bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's, yeah. I'm, 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 I feel good about that. Like of all the things on the new record, I'm really happy with the the the, the lyrics. Of there's some some good bits i'm doing all right why, why do you think uh i mean every artist seems to like their newest album the best obviously but i mean beyond that why, why do you why do you feel you've moved on with this record um where do i think i've moved on why why do you think that your lyric writing sort of progressed there oh i mean i just think i've always you know like you just the the process changes each time and like you almost unlearn every time and so it's a yeah. process of rediscovering but then in the process of rediscovering you you can't tolerate um, tropes that you've used before so you have to discover new ways of doing it in a ways but right yeah. new roots <laughs> I guess yeah 
so you kind of yeah you just sort of relearn each time um, and uh, and I just think I'm, I'm uh, I feel happy with the way I've actually processed um, you know, I've, increasingly through my records I've been able to process um, real life learnings into, yeah. my, into my lyrics yeah. and more and more and I, I think that um, the more you can do that then the more truth um, you can impart or your own truth yeah. uh, you can impart into the lyrics and, and I think the more of that you can you can do uh, the better That's, uh, truth's something I keep coming back to in these interviews you know um, it comes out in various ways whether it's uh, the way you treat your fans or uh, the way you're how true you are to your just the music you make and how honest you are with with you know just even like down to the sort of melodic side of things as well as the lyric writing side uh, is truth is that what you're aiming for overall is that is that something that you seek yeah yeah um but uh i was interested in playing with the idea of truth with the title a, a little bit or well, it's not you know um it's not a huge yeah. overarching guiding principle for the album but just the title of the album I, I i'm always intrigued by the way that people um perceive the stories as being truthful um, yeah and they're not but you know i like the idea of truth you know, truth is just what you know comes from your heart or wherever you people think truth comes from yeah. but it's just like um is truth factual yeah <laughs> yeah the truth, question, yeah, yeah. It, no like. i don't think truth is factual at all not in terms of lyrics but yeah. um um yeah i don't know is, is it it's not something you've consciously pursued or it's important to me. Mm. I mean, I've never, I've always, and I think it's probably been a problem in my career that I've never been, I've never felt comfortable with repeating myself. And, you know, I, you see artists and they, you go to their show and they say the same thing every night. And, mm. but you don't, you know, if you go to their one show, you don't notice that. They just yeah. go, it's great to be in Salford. Um, you know, reel out the you joke. Just say, read, yeah. you know, the same. You say the same thing every night, and it's you know, you're such a beautiful crowd. Um, I have to change that every night, and consequently, it's I m mumble and 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 it's not <laughs> it's not engaging in a way that engages a crowd. You know, can, it can sometimes it's great, but right. it's a risk, and yeah. sometimes it doesn't engage a crowd of a few hundred people, and, and 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 you know, it might engage three people in the crowd, but and you're removing that ability to fine tune your your show in some ways but you know yeah but to me I can't I just can't quite bring myself to be showbiz in that way and and, yeah. and that's my form of expressing truth um, but consequently it's probably slightly um, damaging <laughs> to, to my you know my my career but I can't do anything else <laughs> um, that's an interesting question it's not one on my list but just in terms of things that artists do that are damaging to their careers, are there any others that, any other particular moments that come to mind that that have been damaging to my own career? Perhaps, but you know, <laughs> decisions you had to make for, I guess, for reasons of truth in the end. But I think the one I was probably well, one would be accident, <sighs> accidentally saddling myself with the name Lawrence Arabia. <laughs> Uh, that was a bad one and then um, <laughs> not easy on the Googles not easy on the Google and just a pretty stupid name um, can't think of any others <laughs> <laughs> um, are you a pessimist or an optimist I think on the whole I'm an optimist yeah I do have these uh, dark moments of self-indulgent pe pessimism but um, yeah on the whole I'm pretty optimistic yeah a reason I was going to ask is how you align your sort of position in the world with uh, becoming a parent really um, and how that's impacted your sort of worldview. I ask selfishly because I'm just under a month away from oh, <laughs> joining oh, that congr club congratulations <laughs> um, well I'd say that I'd say that um, parenting hasn't changed my worldview as much as I would have hoped it, it <laughs> might have. But um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm always striving to, to. I mean, the thing that's I'm 
I find valuable about it is it makes you know I, I think that being a m- musician or probably any kind of artist um, is pretty pretty self-indulgent at times there's a lot of navel gazing and mm. angsty crap um, that you go through and it's it's quite pathetic you know I, and I'm very aware of it and I still indulge in it all the time but it's just when you look at your child or you um, it just seems really ridiculous and it's very immature um, and it just seems absurd when you um, when you view that behavior yeah. slightly subjectively and, and then look at it and you know in relationship to your child and so you know I'm really trying to 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 try and frame my behavior in that absurd way all the time and just, you know, take myself out of, you know, because it's, it's frustrating. It's, a, it's frustrating. I have lots of frustrating moments in my career and it's difficult. And, um, but it's not, you know, it's not important. Um, so I'm just, you know, that's, that's the g- great gift of being a parent. And I, I'm, you know, still, tr- I'm still trying to learn it. De- definitely not a magic potion, but it's, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, uh, there's one more quote of yours. I just, I know it's really fun to sit here and have to uh, defend quotes from your past interviews, <laughs> but um, uh, you, uh, this one was from elsewhere, I think, and it said, in life there's been a return to simplicity, people are having chickens in the backyard, and uh, uh, maybe music needs a few chickens in the backyard at <laughs> the moment, which I thought was a lovely way of putting it. Uh, what, what does that mean for you, and what do you think, what does that say about our generation, our sort of the creative time we're in? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, I to me it feels. You know, I, I, I'm hesitant and I'm stuttering because I'm nervous about, um, you know, coming across like an old fuddy-duddy, basically. But um, and I'm not that old, but uh, but it's you know I'm very yeah yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to come across like that, but um, it feels like music is a, um, you know, a lot of music today. It feels like this kind of meta processing of this uh, media hyperactivity that is our world. It's mm. you know it's just processing this feed of different un untethered symbols that you read on your Instagram feed and 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 all this angst and craziness and but 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 without you don't you know you don't think about it more than for a couple of seconds. You're just mm. angry and then you're happy and then you're uh, and then you're looking at some new sneakers that you want to buy and there's a uh, you know yeah um and that's just and it, to me pop music or a lot of music uh, it feels like a kind of musical representation of that current yeah. world um and you know and when i was talking about the chickens in the backyard i think it was probably you know that that there is a lot of you know reaction to that you know the 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 infinite connectivity thing you know people are also just actually going oh it's so in- that is so intense and so mm. unfulfilling in, in, in a way that, that the hum- human race is not actually ready for um, and so we're just you've got this kind of instinct to go back to something more simple and yeah I don't know I mean I do I, I'm always looking for music that has just some I don't know I don't yeah analog bite or some simplicity to it that just that just grabs you some a mm. message that is just hits you and there's no um crap attached to it I, I, and it, it's really hard to find is i think i was like I, I've, I've the new angel olsen record is just like i was really drawn to that i mean it's like the, the songwriting's really um traditional um but it's just like there's something really immediate and i'm lo- always looking for records like that where there's just like this immediacy and simplicity but the idea is really strong and it just hits you rather than just like endless amounts of just hyperactive yeah. crap um yeah yeah i think yeah substance is yeah just some and and it, yeah it can have modern ideas but it just has to have a directness and simplicity and substance that's that hits you and it's really hard to find yeah, yeah. I think uh, that that word processing was interesting. I, I I see it as more almost a process of diversion. It feels like everything because you're battered with so much. It feels like you're kind of diverting everything all the time, you know. And like when, inevitably, when you're on your phone looking at Facebook or Twitter or whatever, um, you're diverting your attention from something else. 
I'm always getting in trouble because I've just lost all ability to concentrate or remember things. And, you know, I'm, my wife's really aware of it. She's just like, you just went in there to do that. You go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's, and yeah. I, cause I constantly, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I guess as part of the media as well, you kind of, you're in it consciously in it all the time as well yeah and you feel like you have to be doing it and you it's your job and you've got to be engaging with it but it's also mm. just yeah it's just it's um it's a productivity hole <laughs> what do you think is going to happen what do you think is the future in that, that sense well hopefully uh i i can't i can't speak for anyone else but i would like to w- withdraw from it as much as possible <laughs> get some chickens yeah yeah i really want to not not chicken specifically but i want to yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go some chickens. Yeah, yeah. go some chickens. Um, well, I think we'll leave it there, actually, with the, with the chicken thought. So <laughs> thank you for joining me in the... Uh, in the lubrious toilet. <laughs> the eagle <laughs> toilet. It's been, a, yeah, it's been one for the records. Yeah, it's been real. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. Okay, that was my interview with James Milne of Lawrence Arabia. Ironically, after we finished that interview, we both legged it to the toilet because apparently you can't spend 45 minutes in one without feeling that call of nature. Um, If you like the clips of his music at the start of the show, definitely make sure you check out his new album, Absolute Truth, which is out now on Flying Nun Records. And I also really recommend Chant Darling, which was previously released on Bella Union a little while back. Um, Again, just a reminder that you can hear all the previous podcasts. You can find links to iTunes and various social networks, etc. on extendedplaypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, if you want to help out in any small way, please use those channels. Subscribe and give the podcast a rating or a review on iTunes. Like it on Facebook. Follow it on Twitter, etc. Share it far and wide. All of it is much appreciated. Anything you can do is really helpful in getting the word out. Otherwise, thanks to James for the time we spent together in the toilet. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back in two weeks with a new podcast. All right, I'll see you then. Bye-bye.